Ladies and gentlemen, Greg Proops. shores of the Hudson Theater, the Comedy Central Space, right here on Bustling Santa Monica Boulevard with our live theatrical audience in attendance here tonight, ladies and gentlemen, as once again I try to navigate the pole that's off stage left and not conk myself before I reach these common fans. Uh, the theater district, of course, is a miasma of creativity and we like to consider ourselves an island of retro dick jokes in the middle of it. <laughs> Uh, so that we don't get too high and mighty uh, playing at theater here. I have played some unspeakable shitholes in the last year, uh, and in specifically in the last month. I don't know if I mentioned on the Proopcast from uh, Edinburgh, Scotland, that um, uh, the place I was doing an improv show every night was called The Caves and was a pestilent, plague-ridden um, hole full of hell. And the cries of the dead who had been walled up in there in centuries past rang out every moment as the moisture dripped from the ceiling in a horrible H.P. Lovecraftian mood. I felt my pineal gland start to glow inside my head as, as the other world reached out to me. I didn't need a Necronomicon in this room. All you needed was a plastic glass full of their heinous, shitty vodka that tasted like cleanser mixed with tears. And then you knew the fucking bitter pain of a room that was 30 degrees centigrade that's about a hundred and something in Fahrenheit and uh, then you'd walk outside into a bitter chilled cold blustery fucking Scottish dreek like you were playing the first round of golf in 1504 <laughs> with a fucking clamshell you know stick and a, and a hedgehog bound as your ball uh, across the turf and, and the moors it was uh, standing in a taxi queue every night and then going to the chip shop and, and it was an education. So one night, the guy who uh, uh, runs this bar, this caves, uh, I guess he wasn't the owner, he ran it. And by the way, they were pestilent plague holes. Uh, the Cowgate in Scotland was a, a, a plague-ridden place. Uh, and at one point, they had a giant plague in Scotland in the 17th century. And uh, there was children dying behind the walls, and they let the mothers go in. And because it's Scotland... Uh, they walled the mothers up with the children at that moment. Exactly. You were right to laugh because it is hilarious. And uh, rather than consider it a tragedy, why not just consider it indicative of another time? And uh, uh, I mean, when you tell people now that we watch Justin Bieber and that Kim Kardashian had a special uh, about her marriage, people are going to have that same kind of laughter. That macabre, morbidly interested, really, I can't believe you let that happen. That's a heinous event past the pale of human experience. Kind of laugh, uh, and so and, and there was standing pools of water uh, off stage and whatnot. I might have discussed this before on the Scottish one. It just occurs to me uh, that tonight this clean, uh, well lit, uh, well uh, technically manned space with abstruse Tiger Stadium poles from the turn of the century. Uh, Tiger Stadium famously had poles in front of seats, and those tickets when you bought them and went to the old Tiger Stadium said obstructed view. <laughs> Well, that's exactly what you want when you walk into a place of any kind of performance, whether it's sports or, or theater or even just a man drinking and talking in a black box. <laughs> 
Some of the seats, I have to say, dear podcast people out there in the ether, and hello, kittens, uh, there are obstructed view seats here at the Hudson Theater. If I was sitting there and they were doing crap's last tape and crap was sitting here, I would be fucked off through the whole play and be like, no, this isn't an existential dilemma. This is me having to crane during Beckett for the whole time while I'm straining my brain at the same time to understand the significance of every morbid morsel of this fucking tussle with death. So... Uh, if you're sitting behind an obstructive view seat, I can't see you because one, I'm almost utterly blind. Two, I rarely listen or watch or infer anything from the audience ever. Three, uh, people have asked me, Greg, why do you always wear tinted shades when you perform? I don't want to fucking see you, okay? How's that fucking rub your chinchilla, okay? Maybe the chinchilla fur is up on its hackles now, but that's how that works. Uh, why don't you want to see us? Have you ever heard of Royal Orbison? I'm covering a lot of deep personal pain with jams about my life, all right? Uh, that's how that works. Crying over you. Apparently, it was an accident when Roy did it. An accident? An accident. Roy Orbison was going to the gig, and um, <coughs> he, he had two pairs with him. And I carry two pairs because I'm a grown man of a certain vintage. <laughs> and no, don't ask the question. Do they change color? No, they don't fucking change color. Do I look like a douchebag from a futuristic 70s movie? Don't answer that. Don't answer that. I know everyone was answering that in their mind just now. And I heard your answer so loudly. Even the people who are listening to this in two or three days time when it drops. I actually heard what you were thinking in your car just now. So fuck you, as, as CC, what's his name, would say. What's his name? CC Sabathia, precisely. The, the fa- Major League Baseball pitcher, CC Sabathia, who wrote the famous song, Fuck You. Um, CeeLo Green. Green, thank you very much for saving me on that one. I think it would be better if CC Sabathia had wrote it. Uh, he's an overpriced free agent. He went from the Indians to the Yankees, and his would be like, Fuck you, and Fuck you too. Uh, ball three, and whatnot. One can only wonder if Satchel Page had written it, what it would be like. He wedged that in too early in the show, hoping for organic laughter and getting nothing but crushing disappointment from the fans sitting behind the obstructed view, Tiger Stadium, Ty Cobb fucking seats. We came to see Ty spike someone and we ain't seen shit. Patooey. Peanuts! Roy Orbison would carry a pair of regular glasses that he could see through and a pair of shades, right? So one night he's going to the gig and he forgot his fucking uh, regular glasses and he was wearing his shades and he went on in the shades and after that, kaboom, right? Uh, a candy-colored clown they call the, cat, the Sandman comes into my room every night and that was what made him groovy. He never saw an audience his entire career. Uh, and I think... There's something to be said for that. It's not that I don't want to see you. It's just that, one, I can't anyway. And two, I'm deaf as a fucking post. Uh, I do improv in several improv groups, and I have to get on stage and take suggestions. And I'd like to let you know that if you come to see me at an improv show and I go, oh, what about a suggestion for a movie? And everybody yells out at once, this is what it sounds like to me. So I really can't hear a goddamn thing you say when we're doing improv. So, Greg, are you really making it up? I make up shit I think of. Uh, <laughs> Wow, what a week, what a world, what a world When a young girl, innocent girl like you can destroy me and my beautiful wickedness 
first of all, we had the final episode of Entourage this week, ladies and gentlemen. So I have been lying in a coffin lined with fan letters for the last three days, <laughs> wearing a blood red sash because uh, the last eight years of my life, this chapter has come to an end, the Entourage chapter. Um, I'm going to assume that all of you watch it because I'm going to go into some detail here. <laughs> if you don't watch it, whatevs. <laughs> I believe it was C.C. Sabathia who said, fuck you, <laughs> and fuck her too. Uh, Anaraj uh, is a television show that's been on this network called Habo, and Habo is a network that over the years uh, has put on many good shows, um, The Sopranios, and uh, Dick Wood, and uh, Nurse Jackie's Not On It, and a lot of good shows. And... What I love about Habao is um, they're a station that celebrates themselves for making TV shows, even though my understanding is they're in the business of making TV shows since they're a fucking network. So they'll have ads where they go like, it's not TV, it's HBO. Well, no, it's TV on your network. So stop acting like you did, because they'll go, an all new episode. Really? You made new episodes? You weren't just going to show the same Arliss over until the end of fucking time? I mean, holy shit, you guys. You're a network. All, it, it, Greg Proops presents from the Hudson Theater an all-new Proopcast. The smartest man in the world. <laughs> Fuck you. Yeah, of course you should do something new every week, you fucking assholes. So they, uh, and then they'll put on a show like, what was it? Carnival. And that was abstruse and difficult to understand. And then they ripped it before anything fucking happened. One, one crappy series in, boom, it's gone. And you think, no. And then they pulled off Dickwood because it cost a bajillion dollars an episode. And then they put on John from Cincinnati, which was the most oblique thing I've ever done, except for trying to read like two Nabokov novels in a row. <laughs> Like when you're just utterly perplexed from Jump Street and it gets no amount of pot clears up the threads for you. When you're watching a show and you're like, so is the guy a thing or is he supposed to be a metaphor? You know, at a certain point, metaphor runs out and you're like, I could go for some fucking titties or a dick joke or a car crash right about now. I mean, I'm as intellectual as the next person and I adore a plot, but Jesus fucking Christ, the simile just crashed into the metaphor and they're aflame, duraflame style in different colors, boring me to death while a fucking Christmas fucking carol plays. Deadwood was on again the other night and it wasn't an all new Deadwood. It was an all old one from six years ago. And it was awesome. I'd forgotten how awesome it was because it was a first season one. And Ian McShane, uh, as Mr. Swearingen, uh, he, he drowned. I don't know if you remember the episode where the, the two opium addicts steal the junk from the, the Chinese, from Mr. Wu, who runs the Chinatown gang. And he has to decide which one to kill. And he drowns him in the bathtub awesomely while the other one watches. And, uh, then he goes over and punches the other junkie in the eye and goes, don't call me Al. And I thought, not, that's fucking good TV. One, that's good TV. It's not TV. It's Habo. And two, it's good Western. Let's be honest. John Wayne, in my opinion, and this is no shortcoming on John Wayne's uh, part. I believe John Wayne strode manfully uh, uh, and, and more majestically than any other Western artist that ever assayed uh, writing and walking and sashaying, which he did, he sashayed. Um, 
no one is, is at his magnitude. He did not drown enough opium addicts, for my taste. <laughs> Call it picky. Um, that one was super good. And then uh, Enaraj has been on the last uh, 17 years. Now, the plot of Enaraj is supposedly based on uh, one of the Wahlberg family who um, were uh, arrested in the 40s for selling secrets to the Russians. Now, the Wahlbergs were unjustly tried and executed by this country and the government, and uh, it was a commie hunt. Let's call it what it was. And then one of them was in New Kids on the Block. Now, what happened was this. The other Wahlberg, the one who lived through the trial, um, started uh, uh, used to wear underwear and would show his package on TV in the 80s. And then, for no reason that anyone could discern, suddenly became an unbelievable movie superstar with uh, amazing power in Hollywood, the power to get shows on Hobo, which is very difficult. Uh, normally, you have to be a failed heroin addict writer to get a show on Hobo. Uh, or have a really clever idea, like, what if a guy had a big dick and fuck girls? <laughs> So uh, this Wahlberg got a show, and apparently it's about his life as a fabulous movie star. Well, he's from that cultural repository, New Jersey, where all things good have uh, have come from for the last uh, 17 years. Uh, The Sopranios and the Jersey Brides and Bridezillas of Jersey and people from Jersey that are mildly repugnant and then people who are slightly more repugnant and then there's the illiterate orange people of New Jersey and then the people with the weird Inca priestess we're going to sacrifice a llama to the gods so that Pizarro won't destroy our hordes of gold hairdos. And then there's the Ed Hardy We Heart Date Rape TV Jersey show and then there's one about um, a bunch of women whose husbands are unspeakable men with hairy breasts who would pig stick each other if they could but they haven't the wherewithal and their chinless sons with their icky hair Uh, there's a bunch of Jersey shows and they're all fantastic um so Anaraj is about this guy and he's supposed to be a movie star and his character's named uh Vinny and he uh uh he, he's, uh, he's a new kind of movie star, right? He's supposed to have been a movie star for the however long the show's been on. He's a movie star that um, has no charisma and is unwatchable. So rather than go for the Wahlberg or the Brad Pitt or even Matt Damon in his, you know, gay Falcon video look or whatever that Matt Damon's doing, or even the wooden cigar store Indian Ben Affleck, I'm going to stick my chin out. Or let's get even younger to the Taylor Lautner, Zac Efron, I wear bangs, and it's so ambivalent whether a scrambled eggs are going to get you a Hummer. Uh, look, we went with this guy who would walk into scenes, and this is what was so true about the show. He played an actor in Hollywood who was a movie star who was trying to be a movie star in a action-type pictures, and he was blithely unaware of any ambition whatsoever for the entirety of the series. Anything would happen, you didn't get the movie. Hey, that's cool. You got the movie. Whatever. Like... (laughs) I live in Hollywood, and I know lots of... uh, What are they called? Actors? And... um, Uh, They don't act like that. Let me just hip you to something. No one in Hollywood, from the lowest person working the fucking valve on the honey wagon to the highest producer in the biggest tower surrounded by coke guards... 
takes anything blithely or with ease in this town. The simplest fucking phone call is fraught with KGB-like paranoiac dimensions. The smallest decision is the decision upon which the safety of your testicles and the financial fucking fortitude of your family till the end of time hinges. No decisions are made or taken lightly in this town. Not even what do you want for lunch, the zone diet, or half a fucking bagel. <laughs> Much less a $15 million contract to be in a James Cameron fucking movie that you're like, hey, let's just get stoned on a bong and hang out with a dude named Turtle wearing a backward hat. No. <laughs> It never happened. It's never gonna fucking happen. I guarantee you, at the abject depths of anyone named Corey in this town's crack addiction, they took fucking calls. Charlie Sheen, while snorting off of a pudenda, would be like, hang on a second. I hear the fax machine. So don't bullshit me, entourage. No one's ever been a Blythe movie star. No one. Dennis Hopper was not Blythe. That's a bad example. <laughs> Maybe the most wound up movie star of all time. Peter Fonda, there you go. Peter Fonda is the opposite of Dennis Hopper, right? Peter Fonda acts like in every movie, he's just, uh, as uh, George MacDonald Frazier would say, cool as a trout. Cool as a trout, right? In the pond. You know, nothing gets me down. Peter Fonda in every movie acts exactly the same. Yellow tinted shades, half smile, sideburns, unbelievably fuckable. Here comes the cops, they're going to kill us. Here comes Satan, he's going to try to kill us. Whatever the plot is, there's only three plots in every Peter Fonda movie. Either the cops are going to kill you or Satan's coming. Or, or we, we're late delivering drugs. And then Peter Fonda will go, yeah. And that's all you want. That's all you want. He's... He's great looking. He's fucking got it all going on. He was uptight waiting by the phone for fucking calls. Okay. Let me just hip you to something, you guys. Uh, secondly, uh, the character we liked the most in the show, the two characters we liked the most were the agent, which is, of course, the opposite of how it would be in real life. <laughs> in real life, you would never go, of everyone I work with, oh, I love that agent. <laughs> Now, I grant you, the reason why you loved Ari and the show Enterage was because he was the most obstreperous, type A, explosive, fucking about-to-have-an-embolism, uh, horrible, cut-you-off-at-the-fucking-knees, semi-glit character that's been on TV. And that's why he was genius. He didn't act blithe about anything. The phone rang, and he would pick it up and throw it down on the floor and smash it, say something racist, and then run out the fucking door and hit someone. And that's what made the character fucking delicious. <laughs> And then Johnny Drama is played by Kevin Dillon, which is just inexplicably good, and I don't even know how to describe the part. When a part matches an actor so perfectly, and they fucking murder it into the ground, not since Joanna Lumley, who spent a career playing bimbos on British TV, and then all of a sudden on AbFab was the funniest person of all time, out of fucking nowhere. It's exactly the same with Kevin Dillon. You watch Kevin Dillon for 30 years, and then all of a sudden, unfucking believably good. Slam dunking. So the last episode, they went eight years. The plot went like this. Uh, uh, hey, Vince, what you want to do the movie? I don't know. What? Oh, fucking the studio says you can't do it. Oh, 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 the studio says you can do it. Hey, <laughs> and then they drink a beer. And then the last season, they thought they'd hip it up. So the last season, Vince, who up till this point has cared not at all about his career, um, started sleeping with a porn star and doing coke 
literally by the bag. And that's when you know when the writers are on fucking break all day. Because the last episode, a bag of cocaine was produced that you wouldn't have seen in a Bugs Bunny cartoon. <laughs> if they'd had coke in Bugs Bunny cartoons. Like, me, what's this? Well, put that down, you wascally. You know, like, wow, that is a big cartoon bag of coke. <laughs> And then they changed him this season. They had him dry up, and so he was all benevolent and shit. But the last episode was hilarious because uh, Vince, who's uh, been, is apparently irresistible to chicks, uh, unbelievably catnip to chicks. You could put him in a little mesh bag, and women would just bat him around, right? <laughs> Even though he gives no, uh, it doesn't give that off in any way on the show. Uh, women are just irresistible, you know, they, they're, they're hypnotized by his curly hair uh, and inability to read a comedy line. And they, oh, someone just someone feels bad now that they watched the show for eight years. He gets married to someone he met two episodes ago, uh, and then Ari was who was having an unbelievable fight and broken up with his wife. The wife came back to him for no reason that I can think of. Turtle, who's a character that the lowest point of the series was Jamie Lynn Siegler from The Sopranos was on the show and gave Turtle a hand job in one episode. Now, when I've had family members die, I've felt less bad than I did during that episode. <laughs> Let me just put it that way. I have had members of my family die on me and I've been like, that was fucking horrible. But then I've watched the Turtle episode where he got a hand job from Jamie Lynn Siegler and I was like, this is worse than that. <laughs> Remember when all those people died in that earthquake in China last year? The turtle handjob episode was worse. It really was. It really was. So farewell, entourage, and adieu. Uh, now the cast can go back out and enjoy what we all enjoy here in Hollywood, the relentless search for a fucking phone call back. Uh, and good luck to you all. Uh, but what brings me to this is I've been watching a Kirk Douglas uh, film festival on TCM this month. Kirk Douglas is the uh, featured actor of the month and he should be like the featured several actors of the month. I don't know how to express Kirk Douglas is so manly that he's several actors. Uh, his virility isn't just beyond question. He is almost without a doubt the rapiest leading man that ever was in movies. And I don't know that he actually rapes anyone in movies. Uh, maybe in the detective story, he's kind of rapey in that one. Uh, but like, he's just rape on screen. It's awesome how thrusting and forward and gauntlet breaking he is at every goddamn moment. And this is no knock on him. I hope, one, that he's at home watching all the movies like I am. Because I know he is. He has a huge ego. And I'm hoping Kirk Douglas is sitting at home yelling at his wife in the other room. Uh, uh, get in here you know because it, it's good so the first few movies he makes Martha Ivers and uh, they showed out of the past the other day and uh, he's not quite Kirk Douglas yet because it took him about eight or nine pictures to what champion when he really plays a thoroughgoing prick it's that Damon Runyon story where the guy you know he d ditches the girl he gets pregnant and he's just a cocksucker and everywhere they go well hey he's champion and Kirk Douglas is perfect in it um 
out of the past is uh, I think the best film noir movie of all time I'm not going out on a limb here Robert Mitchum is a a detective and he's called into uh, Kirk Douglas a gangster he's hiding he's up in uh, the mountains in California near Tahoe and uh, a gangster shows up and you know he's a gangster because he's wearing a black top coat down to his ankles and a fedora and he smokes incessantly (laughs) and there's a deaf kid working at a gas station and and the gangster goes can you read the lips and then you know that he's a dick, right? Because he's not nice to the handicapped. Uh, and I say handicapped in a 50s way. Don't fucking freak out on me and go, deaf people aren't handicapped? I know. Uh, and for the deaf people listening to this show, welcome. <laughs> the, uh, they're, they're not handicapped. They simply can't hear. Any kid, the kid is a gorgeous kid. And, uh, and so the gangster... Uh, finds Mitchum, who's been hiding up there, and goes, uh, Wit wants to see you. Well, Wit's Kirk Douglas. So they take him to the gangster's lair, and uh, it starts at the end and goes back to the beginning, right? So how did it all start? He goes to the gangster's lair, and Kirk Douglas is sitting there in bed, completely shot and wearing a bandage, and his girlfriend shot him. And he goes, uh, I want to hire you to find something for me, Jeff. Right? And Mitchum's like, I want to find yourself. And then he goes... <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, his girlfriend shot him, and he's like, well, why don't you just let her go? And he's like, well, you'll, you'll know when you see her why I don't want to let her go. <laughs> so he sends them to Mexico, and of course, Mitchum falls in love, right? And it has the greatest lines ever. He falls in love with the girl, and um, he goes, uh, when he meets her every night on the beach, every night she'd come running down the beach like school was out. <laughs> And now she's fucked over her boyfriend and shot him, taken $40,000 from him. Now she's fixing to fuck over Robert Mitchum. And she goes, I didn't mean to shoot him. And I didn't take the money. You believe me, don't you, Jeff? And Robert Mitchum has the greatest line in movie history. He goes, baby, I don't care. (laughs) Fade to black. A boom, boom, out go the lights. Seems to me I might have told that story before. Hmm. Problematic that, but we'll carry on because there's lots more Kirk Douglas. So Kirk is in that movie and he's awesomely good. Later in the movie, Robert Mitchum goes, um, I hope I didn't hurt your feelings. And Kirk Douglas goes, my feelings. I seem to have misplaced them about 10 years ago. <laughs> and I haven't been able to find them since. Mitchum goes, well, where'd you put them? And he goes, I think they're in my pocketbook. <laughs> Fucking film noir is the best. And so yesterday they were showing, uh, yesterday, by the time you listen to this, it'll be four or five days previous. Uh, and you'll, you'll be deaf and in your car. Uh, and Entourage will be over. Uh, they were showing Boy with a Horn, which is a Kirk Douglas movie where he's a troubled trumpet player. Well, you think, well, how is Kirk Douglas going to get fury out of being a trumpet player? Because he's furious in every role, pretty much, no matter what he's playing. Kirk Douglas never played, like, the ice cream man. (laughs) Because he knew his character, right? And he said, I'm not in this to, you know, this isn't a business about not having an ego. He has a fucking ego, and he knew what his character was. So he almost always plays someone who's going to punch you if you're a girl. (laughs) So how is he going to be furious as a trumpet player? Well, he doesn't have a mom or a dad, and he's raised by a sister who's kind of a whore. Then he's taken under the wing of a black jazz musician who teaches him to blow. And then, of course, later when he grows up, he's a fucking drunk who fucking gets angry. And 
beats his trumpet to death in one scene, which I think might be my favorite scene in the entire movie. Uh, he just takes it and just beats it to death on a table and then throws it on the floor and then it's going crazy in frustration. And while you were watching, my wife goes, oh my God, Sean Penn has done everything Kirk Douglas has done. And it's true. If you watch uh, Dennis Hopper in old 50s movies, Owen Wilson is doing Dennis Hopper. And if you watch Kirk Douglas, Sean Penn is doing Kirk Douglas. Just give it a try. That's all I'm saying. Uh, Give it a whirl. Uh, So the plot of Boy with a Horn is he's an upset trumpet player. He joins a band. Doris stays in the band. And she sings a bunch of numbers. And she's hot. Then later Lauren Bacall's in the movie. And what occurred to me while I'm watching the movie, this movie was made 60 years ago. They're all alive. And they're all watching this week. Where does Doris Day live? Up in Monterey? Uh, Lauren Bacall's in, what, the Dakota in New York? And fucking Kirk is here in Beverly Hills. They're all fucking watching. You know they are. And I hope they're fucking calling each other, too. Because that would make me fucking happy if they were drinking individually down the phone with each other across the country. Hoagie Carmichael's in the movie, and they just don't have characters. I know this is going to sound corn pone. They don't have characters. Would you like a stove to, ho- to heat up that pone? You're a- Why, yes, I would. This corn's kind of cold. Let me heat this pone up here on this pot-bellied stove. Um, they don't have characters like this in movies anymore. Now they have, uh, you know, Queen Latifah or uh, whoever, you know, the sassy friend goes along. <laughs> Hoagie Carmichael's got a cigarette hanging out of his mouth, a hat back on the head, and everything is like this. Hey there. He's his best friend. So he joins the band. Dora stays in the band. He gets too upset because they don't want to play the kind of jazz he wants to play. I want to play the stuff that swings. And so he eventually is out of the band. He falls in with Lauren Bacall, who Dorstey introduces him to. Well, Dor- Lauren Bacall, uh, she's abstruse. She's studying to be a doctor. She's clearly from a rich family. Uh, L.A. is standing in so hard for New York in this movie. Some of the scenes are shot in New York. They keep going like, bum, 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 you know, New York. And then, whoa, UCLA. Uh, so he takes, she takes her to the school where she's studying. And it's so fucking clearly UCLA with the giant Spanish lamps. And you're like... Places in, in New York don't have, like, red tile steps and Spanish lamps, usually. Uh, fair enough. So, uh, they get married, and um, she's all... First of all, she won't give him one, right? He gets her up to the place, and he's like, well, you're really acting weird, and, like, she fucking, no, don't touch me. She kisses him once, and then, like, no. She fucks off, gets in the elevator, and the elevator boy takes her down, and then she fucking leaves, and then comes back awesomely. So this is what screenwriting was like in the old days. Rather than having to watch Ryan Reynolds grind on top of an actress, (laughs) which we've all had to do, rather than that moment ever happening in your life, rather than ever having to watch Charlize Theron go, "Uh, uh, uh," underneath underneath Hugh Jackman or some bullshit. In an old movie, she goes down the lift, gets off the lift, walks back onto the lift, and the elevator board just goes... "Mm." (laughs) And the lift goes back upstairs, and now we know what happened, right? You didn't have to see Kirk Douglas go, fucking Lauren. (laughs) Lauren McCall. No, we didn't need it. So they hook up all of a sudden. Doris Day comes to fucking warn him about Lauren because she's such a strange person. She's studying to be a doctor, but she doesn't want to throw him one. And people don't just throw Kirk one in movies. They have to throw him one because, like Charlton Heston, yeah, he'll knock you to the ground and fucking, you know, game on. So uh, Doris Day comes in and she goes, you've got to understand, she's all messed up inside. She's 
She's confused. Oh, what are we leading to here? She doesn't like B-O-Y-S's? And uh, then um, Kirk goes, I didn't tell you. We got married two days ago. And Lauren Bacall pops into the scene and has heard everything shitty Doris Day has said. And Lauren Bacall goes, thanks for the good wishes. (laughs) Doris Day goes, I hope you can forgive me. And runs out the door. So later, their marriage goes to shit, and you're like, well, it's because she's queer. Lauren Bacall's character's queer, and that's why they're not getting along as a married couple. Doris Day warned you she was queer. (laughs) Do you need a fucking marching band? It's the Chaz Bono red flag. In an old movie, if Doris Day, Eve Arden, or Marjorie Maine warns you that a character is a lesbian, then they are a lesbian! <laughs> awesome movie. Then Ace in the Hole... Was, there's a happy ending, by the way. Thank fuck, because it's so depressing. There's a lot of drinking, and then he, he beats his trumpet to death. And then Ace in the Hole was on after, which is just... I'll give a very brief discussion of Ace and the Billy Wilder. And, you know, Billy Wilder makes two kinds of movies, sublime and abrasive, right? <laughs> there's, there's Sunset Boulevard, The Apartment, uh, 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 Double Indemnity, Lost Weekend, right? There's those. Well, there's the other kind, too. He makes another kind of movie. Spirit of St. Louis, Emperor's Waltz, Unwatchable Drek. Okay, there's those ones. Sorry about it. I forgot about those ones. And generally, he's a genius, right? He wrote Ninochka. He wrote Ball of Fire. You know, there's no getting around him. Uh, uh, and then there's the other kind of movies, the, uh, uh, the Fortune Cookie 123, where it's just breakneck and everyone yells, or Kiss Me Stupid, which is intolerably misogynist. In any case, Ace in the Hole is a 50s one. He makes with Kirk. Uh, uh, he's a reporter. He can't get a gig. He's in New Mexico. He hates his life. Uh, he used to live in New York. They're bringing him uh, a tacos instead of, what is it, pastrami? The, the Indian guy, and they call the Indian chief and shit like that in a movie. So, yeah, knuckle down. It's an old movie. Don't freak out. It's an old movie. You can't watch Dumbo and go, those crows are Negro parodies. <laughs> it was then. So, uh, but it doesn't make it right, Greg. No, but it doesn't make it different either. So uh, he goes, hey, chief. And the Indian goes, no more pastrami, man. I'm tired of cutting it for you. You get tacos or whatever. And Kirk Douglas, tacos? <laughs> A movie first. I don't think anyone in the history of cinema has been furious over tacos till this moment in cinematic history. So I grant you that one. I mean, wow. Tacos? No more sour pickles. So they're riding along, him and his boy uh, photographer, and uh, a guy's uh, been ransacking one of the Pueblos in New Mexico, and he's gotten caught in the cave. There's been a cave in, and Kirk Douglas sees his moment, right? What does he see, Greg? Well, he's a reporter who doesn't have a story. What he sees is the moment to fucking make hay. Like the Chilean Miner story, like baby Jessica, like uh, 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 who's that poor fucking child that was beaten to death by that woman that everyone's castigating and... Yeah, Casey Anthony, like Casey Anthony. A story that will grab everybody by the balls. It means nothing to anyone personally at all, but it, the entirety of America will fucking barf up fucking money just to fucking stay near this story at every goddamn moment of the day and pretend it is emotionally involving. So, uh, 
the uh, the guy's trapped in the mine and he takes a picture of him and he like makes friends with him and he goes you're gonna be in the paper and the guy and this is what made it so fucking timely the guy's like the paper <laughs> he's trapped in a mine he can't move never mind that I'm gonna be on TV when does Anderson Cooper get here when's Nancy Grace start a day watch on me day five and he's still trapped in there He's one of the heroes. So that's how the movie goes. He keeps the guy trapped in there. They can get him out in two days, but he keeps him in there until he can get all the money he wants. And then it becomes a circus, a literal circus with rides and TV. Oh, yeah. 1951. Check out that movie if you want to fucking shoot yourself in the head. Because while you're watching it, you're like, oh, my God, all that is missing is a Kardashian and Brian Williams crying. <laughs> awesome interview with us. Uh, so that one goes out to Kirk. And one last thing about Kirk Douglas, two last things. Uh, not only was he a superb, virile actor with enormous shoulders who pioneered wearing giant Goodfeller fucking 70s collars in the late 40s with enormous ties. Um, uh, he hired Dalton Trumbo against the blacklist. He started his own production company. He'd really tried to get independent of the studios. He gave Stanley Kubrick a start and making A pictures. Like, there's really, you can't say enough about Kirk Douglas as a producer and a person. Here's a quote that I pulled today that I thought was very good by him. Senator McCarthy was an awful man who was finding communists all over the country. He blacklisted the writers who wouldn't obey his edict. The heads of the studios were hypocrites who went along with it. My company produced Spartacus, written by Dalton Trumbo, a blacklisted writer, under the name Sam Jackson. Too many people were using false names back then. I was embarrassed. I was young enough to be impulsive, so even though I was warned against it, I used his real name on the screen. Which he did, man. And not many people had the balls. Just like uh, during the last, the current two wars, uh, anyone that said they were against the war, you may remember what uh, happened to Jeanine Garofalo for simply being against war at the beginning of the Iraq war. She had to go on TV and people would go, you hate America! <laughs> well, it was much worse uh, when he was making those pictures. And he is a courageous guy. And right on. And why do I bring it up? Because the Tea Party debate was this week, and um, I haven't seen that many ugly white people since fucking Osama bin Laden got wiped out. Uh, the, I, I really can't get over, uh, first of all, they were calling it a Tea Party debate. Did the Tea Party sponsor the last one? Did they? Because they were calling it the Tea Party debate, although all of the Republican candidates were there. It was in Tampa, and they had Wolf Blitzer moderate it. I wouldn't let Wolf Blitzer moderate a bris, okay? <laughs> He's incapable of moderating a walk, don't walk sign. Here comes walk. It's kind of controversial. Very controversial that it switches back. I don't know which way it should stay. Some people like walking. Some people like don't walking. <laughs> Every moment of his life is from a corporate lapdog lickspittle butt grab script that is just unbelievable that he fucking hosted this thing. So I'm sure you heard about the highlights and shit. Uh, you know, it was, the, it was actually the debate to four that Rick Perry said, uh, 243 executions, state of Texas, sovereign governor. Everybody went, yay! 
Now, if you want to know what's wrong with the world, I think cheering for the death penalty might be one of the chief indicators. Now, you might even be for the death penalty because you might have that awesomely well thought out argument that all pro death penalty people whip on me whenever I say I'm against the death penalty. They say, what if I fucked your mother and then I killed her? (laughs) Well, that would be pervy and weird. Why would you do that? Just to prove a point? Wouldn't you want me executed? (laughs) No, I wouldn't want anyone executed. Why wouldn't you want anyone executed, Greg? One, there's no redress of grievance. What does that mean? That means that uh, just because you kill someone doesn't mean that if I kill you that the grievance is fucking addressed and all of a sudden put to bed and there's what we call in this world closure. Secondly, uh, the state should never have the power to kill its citizens because it's a power that can be, how do I put this, abused. Um, For instance, they're going to put a guy, I don't know if he'll be put to death by the time this uh, arrives. Mr. Buck in Texas is scheduled to be uh, electrocuted tomorrow. Um, Rick Perry is on the campaign trail, so he's going to let the lieutenant governor preside over this one. Um, A psychologist appeared in court at this man's trial, uh, and he's a black man who definitely killed a couple of people. He's he's convicted, murderer, Um, and was asked, is he more likely to commit more crimes because he's black? And the answer was yes. So there's been half a dozen cases in Texas where they've had to have a rehearing on this because this psychologist gave... uh, um, evidence in court and his uh, always has said that black people are more likely to commit crime. Well, it may have occurred to you while you're sitting there watching here in the darkness through your obstructed seat or you out there in Proopcast land listening in the ether that maybe that might be legally unfair to infer that one race might be more likely to commit a crime later in their career than another race. And indeed, you would be right. You are not Hammurabi. You are not Axonometer. You are not Blacksmith's Fundamentals. You are not Abraham Lincoln working the Illinois Circuit Court and yet you could figure out that fucking legal point that the governor of Texas could not figure out. And lastly, why are you against the death penalty, Greg? Because Iran, China, and Saudi Arabia have it. And if you want to roll with the bitches, you're going to come up smelling like a bitch. That's all I have to say about that. You really want to be in their fucking neighborhood when the fucking pennies are handed out to put on our eyes when we cross the river sticks? Uh, Jimmy Carter's interviewed in The Guardian this week and you should Google it, uh, The Guardian newspaper it's a very good article uh, it's a Guardian journalist, so understand it's an English journalist that means they're bitter beyond measure they do coke at the Groucho Club on the weekend they have, they're liberal in their heart but, but if those kids had come to my neighborhood and stolen a TV because <laughs> uh, of the London riots stay with me what they couldn't get over was that Bill, uh, Jimmy Carter and Rosalind still hold hands and snuggle and are in love with each other sexually um, because apparently old people are supposed to die at the age of 70 and then never be heard from again. Uh, instead of being vital like Doris Day, Lauren Bacall, and Kirk Douglas, all of whom I would hit right this instant. <laughs> Jimmy Carter and Rosalind Carter were hot, and I mean hot, hot stuff. Uh, Rosalind was a good-looking first lady and didn't have cankles or anything. She was hot. She wasn't a, you know, Eisenhower bride. She was fucking good stuff. Uh, It wasn't Barbara Bush. She didn't go like, oh, God, I'm going to have to pretend we're crossing the Delaware in order to get it over with you. (laughs) Was that a cheap shot at her looks? You darn betcha it was. 
the Carter Center, uh, obviously you know all about Jimmy Carter. I'm hoping you do. Although I know young people listen to the show and young people are sometimes sketchy on things that happened before they were born. Because young people will say to me, well, that was before my time. Well, let me just hit you to something. One, this isn't your time. You haven't left your indelible mark on the century yet, so fuck you. And two, I don't know. I wasn't born in ancient Rome, but I know who Caesar was. It's easy to fucking learn shit. So why don't you try to? Uh, Jimmy Carter was president one term. Uh, He followed Gerald R. Ford and his unbelievably awesome wife, Betty. And uh, a lot of people would say Carter's term was unsuccessful for various reasons. One, and primarily, the uh, Iranians uh, still uh, took hostages and kept them in Tehran for 444 days. And then an unsuccessful helicopter mission was launched, which cost him the election. This is what I love about Jimmy Carter. that he's interviewed now. He's 86 years old. First of all, let me hit you to another thing. He's the longest serving officer that's ever been president. He was a naval officer for over 30 years. And I mean longer than Eisenhower, longer than George Washington, longer than Herbert Walker Bush, longer than Walker Bush. Uh, yeah, Jimmy Carter. But wasn't he a faggot and a pacifist and everything bad happened? What about the Reagan revolution that followed him? That made America happy again. Um, no. Ronald Reagan thought he was in the army, as you recall. Remember, he said he served, and then, oh, that was a movie. Fuck. Life is so blurry. It goes so fast. What Jimmy Carter's most proud of is that he didn't fire a single shot, didn't kill a single person, didn't lead his country into war, legal or illegal. This is from 1976 to 1980. We kept our country at peace. We never went to war. We never dropped a bomb. We never fired a bullet. But we still achieved our international goals. We brought peace to other people, including Egypt and Israel. We normalized relations with China, which had been non-existent for 30-something years. We bought peace between the U.S. and most of the countries in Latin America because of the Panama Canal. And we formed a working relationship with the Soviet Union. Now, you're having to watch the Republican debates where people are screaming and stamping about how the poor are taking all the money and how we should dismantle health care because health care is bad and how welfare is an entitlement, but all rich people should never, ever, ever pay anything and how war is an endless state that needs to be great because that's what keeps us strong and then we need to wipe people out. And you may have heard the edict come down today that children under 12 will no longer have to take their shoes off when going through airport security. Fucking let freedom ring and shit from the highest mountaintops. Really? Children under 12? don't have to have their balls rubbed as frequently? This country's getting awesome. Where do I sign up to stay forever? This is a president who was president in my lifetime, who's still alive, who's most proud that no one got shot by another American or had a bomb dropped on them by another American. Remember how we brought peace to Libya this week? Remember how we're bringing peace to Iraq? There's been a lot of eruptions in Iraq this week. We're about to pull out. Um... Here's a president who's proud. And, and by the way, since him, no. It's been constant war since then. But Reagan, yeah, yeah he did. Uh, don't argue with me. Uh, and of course, he won a peace prize and shit like that. Uh, a real peace prize. Not like the one Obama won. Because Jimmy Carter's peace prize can look him square in the eye when he walks in and go, Hello, Mr. President. <laughs> Obama's peace prize goes, no. Don't look me in the eye. Uh, He should have bombed Tehran, according to everyone on his staff, 
And his wife told him it, he would have got reelected if he'd bombed Tehran. That's probably true. A lot of people thought that, but it probably would have resulted in the death of maybe tens of thousands of Iranians who were innocent. When was the last time you heard a politician even infer that innocent people shouldn't die? Um, we're in the theater of cruelty right now where people get on stage and I don't know, you saw the other night. What if a 30 year old guy didn't have insurance and blah, blah, blah. And, and they went, well, he should die. And then people started screaming. Yeah. And shit like that. And then Ron Paul said, that's what freedom's all about. The freedom to choose to die by not being insured. <laughs> Thank you. I thought it was funny too. One person laughs, but everybody's like, no, this is where we're at. This is the national discourse. We're allowing Rick Santorum and Michelle Bachman to speak in front of other people. <laughs> Even though they haven't thought out anything they're going to say. His wife thought she should have dropped, well, he should have dropped bombs on Tehran. It was not popular among my own advisors inside the White House, including my wife. Again, when, when was the last president who stood up to his advisors? Obama, mm. Really, says the reporter. Well, she thought I ought to be more willing to use military power, said Jimmy Carter. Uh, I kind of love him for that a little bit. Uh, let's get on to some questions that we have uh, that people send in. First of all, let's get to the real news. This was uh, in the Daily Mail, was it? I got it from Gawker. I'll just be very honest because the, the headline was irresistible. You know who Gordon Ramsay is? He does that horrible show called uh, Whatever. <laughs> And he had another show before that. Here's the plot of every Gordon Ramsay show. All right, big boy. All right, big boy. Fuck you, big boy. All right, fuck it. Big boy, all right, fuck you. All right, big boy. Yeah. Um, and somehow good food's supposed to come out of that. He goes into kitchens and he yells at people and he browbeats them into submission until they're a gibbering mess. And then he screams at them some more. And then you're supposed to go, I want to eat that. I want to eat the dish that came out of the fucking family squabble that's been going on in the kitchen for the last hour. Um, if you ever go into a really nice restaurant, uh, I, I was in Charlie Trotter's in Chicago years ago. Um, it's a sepulchral atmosphere. Um, there should be soft organ music playing. It should, uh, there should be Bach playing in the kitchen of every nice restaurant because people go like this. Order number two. The quail. That's what it's like. No one fucking goes, ah, big boy. Uh, only Gordon Ramsay does because it sells TV shows. Uh, Gordon Ramsay's sex dwarf found dead in Badger set. Gordon Ramsay's porn dwarf double eaten by Badger. This was in the Sunday Sport. I don't know where I can put the Sunday Sport for you. I don't even know how to describe British newspapers to you, really. That, there's the Times, you know, and that's Murdoch. And then there's the Guardian, and that's like uh, the annoying guy who steals your fucking space at the Whole Food and then gets out with a wicker basket and a baby strapped to his stomach. <laughs> Then there's the observer, and that's the guy who can't decide how much fucking milk he wants in his coffee in front of you in line. Then there's the, the telegraph, and that's the guy who takes your parking space and then calls you an asshole and, and calls your friend a wog, even though they're just dark-skinned. Then there's uh, uh, the mirror, and the mirror is like, uh, I won't have those breasts. Oh, bring in more Filipino boys that I may spread marmalade upon. <laughs> And then what's the one that just folded? Was that the mail? News of the, uh, News of the World just folded. Well, that was an unspeakable rag. Sunday sports below News of the World. <laughs> it's not, what's the one? There's one there called The People or something. Uh, my, uh, th their slogan used to be their, their punchline on their, on their page. Bat 
battling for those who are battling for Britain. <laughs> British headlines are the best. When they, when they, when they got Slobodan Milosevic and they ran him to ground in uh, uh, the Balkans, gotcha, Slobo. <laughs> Slobo. Gordon Ramsay porn dwarf double eaten by badger. Uh, Percy Foster, a 36-year-old dwarf porn star. Stay with me. Whose career was just beginning to catch fire. He was doing a movie called Hi-Ho, Hi-Ho. It's up your arse we go. And one of the production assistants noticed he looked like Gordon Ramsay. But just, and this is the, I didn't write this. I wish I had. Just as Foster was set to join the rarefied ranks of celebrity look-alike dwarf porn stars, tragedy struck. <laughs> so sadly, they think he might have committed suicide and was eaten by badgers, but it is the best headline you'll see this week. Gordon Ramsay sex dwarf found dead in badger set. A badger set is a burrow. They also call buckets butts. Go figure. If you wish to question me or query me or poke me or prod me in any way, like a salamander in a cage, I am available for your moisture. Uh, I was born in gelatinous sack and I live to serve you. And you may uh, question me at smartestatuspecialthing.com. Do we have time to take questions here tonight? Uh, maybe a few. Wow, what an ambivalent answer. <laughs> yeah, I understand. Thank you. I was hoping you'd answer as Kirk Douglas. Well, that depends on you. <laughs> Or Lauren Bacall. Well, take the questions if you want. I'll be outside. I don't like your manners. I don't like them myself. <laughs> Dearest Mr. Proops. Oh, smartestofthespecialthing.com is the, is the email. Yes, we still use email. And don't ever call it snail mail. I love real mail. And I'll defend the post office to the death. You know why they're trying to dismantle the post office this week? I'll give you two fucking reasons why. It's, it has an overfunded pension fund. It's the last strong union the government has. And black people and minorities and women work there. That's why they're trying to destroy the post office. There's no reason to cut back postal service or not have Saturday delivery or fuck the post office over in any way. People who call it snail mail eat my fucking ass with a spoon. There's nothing like getting a fucking letter. Nothing like getting a letter. I don't want your fucking text happy birthday, okay? Buy a fucking card, you douchebag, and buy a fucking magic marker and write my name poorly in it, won't you? Show some fucking consideration. And you have family members who are older. They don't want it either. They're older. Someone who's 60 or 70 doesn't want a fucking email from you. Send them a fucking card. Seriously. How about this? Think about the person you're writing to and write their name on the envelope before you write the letter to them. And then think about what you've been doing in your life that relates to them when you write them the letter as opposed to, hey, what's up? <laughs> Give it some consideration. That's why they call it writing. Not you are hot and fucking smiley face emoticon. Emoticon. You're just bitter because you're older. No, I'm bitter because they're trying to dismantle this country piece by piece. And when you take away the post office, I swear to fuck what is next. It'll be like the movie RoboCop where the police department's farmed out to some shitty corporation and you call them and they're like, we are busy now. <laughs> Dearest Mr. Proops, here's the question. 
Jack asks, Jack? Jack? Do you have the diamonds? I always win, Jack. Have you ever had any memorable run-ins with the law? Hey, fuck you, Jack. (laughs) Back the fuck off. That's the answer to that fucking question. What are you, my parole officer and shit? Fuck you. I'm just kidding, Jack. Uh, yeah. Tom asks... Greetings, your imperial prudeness. Wow, that is a bit much. Please rise, Tom, from my carpet. Thank you, Tom. Is it? Uh, one, there's two questions. Well, who empowered you to ask two questions? I am my imperial prudeness. I'll entertain your first question, Tom, and then we shall see about the second question, shall we? Here's your first one. One, period. What is the greatest genre of music? I've answered this question an immense amount of times on the show. Uh, Old school funk and glam. That's two genres. Yeah. I am imperial proofness. I get to pick two fucking genres. And last week, someone asked me when I was in Austin. And by the way, I liked you, Austin. You're okay. I'm not ready to commit. It was a little white for me. If there's, as my wife would say, if there's not enough Jews and queers around, I can get a little jumpy. You know, when everybody's named Ted and shit, okay, all right, calm down. I mean, really? And it was warm, and everyone was wearing, you know, the worst clothes in the world. I mean, seriously, the worst clothes in the world. I'm going to wear shorts because it's warm. You don't have to. You're a giant fucking fat Texas guy. Is that what they're called, Texas? Why don't you wear pants, man? You can even wear your phone on your belt, and I won't make fun of you this time. Well, it's warm. I'm going to wear my shorts. Please don't do that. Don't wear your shorts because it's warm. Resist. Don't capitulate. Fucking stand proud, man. Staunch. Staunch the flow. Staunch it. Don't. Really? I mean, I'm not kidding. Every goddamn person in Austin, Texas was wearing shorts. Now, it's like people's feet. One out of ten, they say, people's feet are passable enough to be photographed. And men, none out of ten. People who wear shorts, let's just get to it. What are the percentages here? Two out of ten? Two out of twenty? Am I wrong? I mean, when you see people walking down the street in shorts, and sometimes you go like, whoa, really? Seriously? Are we going to be showing a movie on this later? And even if you do have a hot ass, it doesn't mean you always have to crack it out. Uh, Old school funk and uh, glam. And the question was, if someone wrote a song about your life, who would it be? And I said, Martha Hoople, because I love Ian Hunter beyond all measure, and I tried to look like him in high school. And um, and he counts off songs like this. One, two, three, four! Like that. And... um, but lately, I've been watching The Suite quite a lot. And if you remember The Suite, thank you. Uh, the, ch- the crowd would chant, we want The Suite, we want The Suite. The Suite, oh, how do I describe The Suite? Uh, are you ready, Steve? Mm-hmm. Andy, okay. 
Mick, all right. Well, all right, fellas, let's go! Like, like they were the fayest, fucking gayest, glammiest, unbelievably good. So they get to parts in the songs, and their singer, Brian, was just amazing, like, like Rick Nielsen from Cheap Trick, a completely underrated rock and roll singer, maybe the greatest. And then Steve would get to parts, so they do like, um, what is it, the blockbuster. Does anybody know the way? There's got to be a way. Or what is it, uh, did we hear someone say? And Steve would go, we just haven't got a clue what to do. Like, that's just unbelievably good. Un- do yourself a favor, go on YouTube, look up Blockbuster. In the middle when Steve does that line, the other the guitar player blows him a kiss. And if you don't know what glam rock is, fucking get in touch. <laughs> I believe it was Alice Cooper who said, telephone is ringing. Um, and then the second question, why isn't it metal? Oh, pff, Tom. White, straight, icky guys with tattoos on their neck like metal. Next question. <laughs> Thank you for asking, Tom. Why isn't it metal? Are you fucking joking? One guy's queer, the guy from Judas Priest, and you think that's a cool genre? <laughs> fucking smoke some weed, Tom. <laughs> Seriously, dude. Fucking just get a fucking... I mean, we we're talking about Ashford and Simpson last time. Get a fucking Ashford and Simpson record... Uh, it's called Found a Cure, and it's played at every gay pride parade. It goes, Found a Cure, like that. That's the chorus. Uh, smoke a joint and listen to that Ashford and Simpson record, and then come back to me on your metal thing for a while. When black people with unbelievably processed hair throw that much fucking soul and funk into a gay anthem, I think you're going to have to reconsider your position, Mr. Fat T-shirt male breast dude. <laughs> Corey asks, wow, that's the second Corey mentioned tonight. Uh, your eminence, mm, well, your, I'm, I'm going to make myself a makeshift mitre. Your eminence and most proofulness. Yes, my child? Can you opine, can I? Can I fuck? Can you opine on the wonder of Doc Ellis and his LSD-fueled no-hitter? Oh, I don't know that there's enough time. This may be the entire next show. (laughs) Doc Ellis was a, a pitcher, and he happened to be black, much like Satchel Paige was during the Negro League days. Now, Doc Ellis um, pitched for the Pittsburgh Pirates and had a boss afro. And the Pirates used to wear uh, these stripy hats that were like 1890s hats that had little stripies on them in the 70s. And so his afro, like Reggie Smith on the Dodgers and the Sox, stuck out the sides, which made him super fucking fly. And uh, Doc was, one, a great pitcher. One day... Uh, they were always playing the Cincinnati Reds, uh, the Pete Rose, Joe Morgan, uh, uh, Johnny Bench, Tony Perez Reds, Dave Concepcion Reds. And there was always down to them in the playoffs. And they were meeting the Reds for a tough series. And Doc Ellis said to the team, I'm hitting everyone today. And they went, what do you mean? And he went, I'm hitting everyone. Well, if you don't know in baseball, the batter stands in and the pitcher can hit you with the ball. They're not supposed to, but they fucking can if they want. Uh, Chin music, I think they sometimes call it. Uh, One pitcher was famously called the barber because he shaved uh, people. So... uh, Doc Ellis, the first batter, is Pete Rose, of course. Uh, you may remember Pete Rose. He had a haircut uh, like a Chinese girl from the 40s. Uh, 
and or Mo, perhaps, if you're Bobby Slayton, uh, um, Mo from the Three Stooges, and uh, it has more hits than any other human alive, more hits than Ty Cobb even. And uh, um, it, it, Pete Rose first batter, boom, Doc Ellis hits him. Pete Rose because he's Pete Rose, and this is so Pete Rose picks up the ball and underhands it back to him. Right, uh, it's a baseball game, Major League Baseball game. Underhands it. Next batter up is um, Joe Morgan, and Morgan yells down to Rose. He only hit me because. Um, he only hit you because you're white. Joe Morgan's black. Next pitch, boom, right in his ass. <laughs> then he proceeds to hit Bench and Perez. And by that point, a run has been walked in. And the umpire fucking throws him out of the game for fucking hitting every batter. <laughs> like he just didn't throw a fucking strike. He just fucking <laughs> just threw at every Cincinnati Red. This isn't even the incident we're talking about here. <laughs> this has nothing to do with Doc Ellis acid-fueled no-hitter. Uh, there's a there's a YouTube video that we're, we're going to go back and review in between. Of course, I could speak about this till the end of time. We're going to come back to this question and we're going to address it first next week because it is a superb question. Yes, a professional athlete took LSD, tripped his balls off, and threw a fucking no-hitter in a Major League Baseball game. Yes, it really happened. And yes, we're going to talk about it. Doc passed away a year or two ago, so we're so going to talk about it. Excuse me. Thank you, Corey. Benji asks... Well, I have a question for you, Benji. What's it like to be hunted through the forest? <laughs> Greg. Oh, just Greg, huh? It's hard to read your question. I can barely see it. Oh, well. Too bad. Christine asks... Really, Greg? Okay. I didn't know we were dating and shit. Lord Mayor Proops. Ah. Thank you, Christine. If you were among the original ratifiers of the U.S. Constitution, well, I'd own slaves. So, so that would be awesome, right? Talk about never having to polish your shoes and going like, God, I've got a boner. I wonder what I'll do with this. Uh, if you were among... Oh, that's not the whole question. If you were among the original ratifiers of the U.S. Constitution, would you have been a Federalist or a Democratic Republican? Oh, sweet fucking Mary. Oh, oh golly. You know, 18th century questions about political parties are what we entertain first and foremost here. I've said it time and time again. If I had to choose a party, it would be Bull Mooser. And I think my wife knows what I'm about to say next. Right down the line. It was Teddy Roosevelt's party. Uh, well, my understanding was Washington was a Federalist, right? And therefore Alexander Hamilton. And I think that some of them were quite smart. I think the problem with the Democratic Republicans was they didn't give a fuck about black people or women at any point. Not that Federalists did. Um, so a toss-up on that one there. Let me put it this way. I would have liked to have gone to France and foment their revolution. Does that answer your question? No, it evades it almost utterly. <laughs> Sometimes we're vague and we dissemble. Thank you, Christine. Amin. I think we've had Amin before. Is it Amin or Amin? A-M-I-N. Hey, Greg. Hey, Amin. <laughs> if Caligula... Oh, Christ, it's one of these. <laughs> I don't read these beforehand, so when I get to them, it's when you're getting to them. 
you know what's coming. When it starts with Caligula, there's going to be a list of unlikely people after this. I haven't seen them yet, but I'm, I'm guaranteeing you the next one is going to have so little to do with Caligula that you're going to be like, not only are they not a Roman emperor, I don't know where this is fucking coming from. If Caligula... <laughs> Freddie Mercury... <laughs> And Silvio Berlusconi are having competing bunga bunga parties on the same night and you can only attend one. Which would it be and for what reason? Good fucking question. I mean, I take it back. Your theoretical turned into a hypothetical. Well, let's just break it down ever so quickly because we don't have that much time. Uh, Caligula, the little boots, uh, was quite young, so the party would be attended mostly by his own acolytes. Secondly, uh, I think there'd be boys and girls and girls and boys and people in between. And thirdly, someone might die before the night's over. Uh, You might put a slave inside a cow, a metal cow, and then heat that cow up with a giant fire underneath it and listen to their screams as they perish while you get drunk on bowls of wine. Think about that at your Caligula party. Freddie Mercury, oh, buddy. (laughs) Leather pants are going to be worn without shirts and there is going to be 70s fucking pubic hair. (laughs) Big, bushy, fucking, lumpy, fucking 70s pubic hair all in your fucking cognac. You're going to be pulling pubic hair out of your Coke? You're going to be, you're going to be given a, a, a fanciful spoon in the shape of a cock and balls to do your Coke with? I mean, just think about a Freddie Mercury party. It's going to be awesome. And then music will be playing. Don't leave me this way. I can't survive or stay alive. You know, it's going to be awesome. Silvio Berlusconi is going to be attended (coughs) by a bunch of fat men with hairy breasts who have their hair slicked back while guards stand by with AK-47s and 20-year-old Balkan girls who are coked up and drugged are going to have to run around naked and finger bang each other for your delectation (laughs) while there's a giant buffet. Because these guys are 70 and without Viagra and frequent pee-pee breaks, there is going to be no bunga bunga. So I'm picking the Freddie Mercury party. Uh, I don't know how much more time we have, but I do know this. I do know two things. One, Lauren Bacall is eternal, and my impression of her is terrible. It sounds way much more like Marianne Faithful, who I once saw in concert years ago in San Francisco. And a girl in the audience yelled out, We love you, Marianne. And Marianne, who stood there, stone stock, still rigid with a cigarette and a cup of coffee, went, And I love you. <laughs> so my wife and I went to see Licky Lee a couple of months ago, a month or two ago, uh, over to the Greek, which is so much better than the Hollywood Bowl. The Hollywood Bowl, you know what the Hollywood Bowl can do? Fuck itself. <laughs> I wasn't aware that it physically could, but it can. It smells like wine and barf and disappointment. And there's always a douchebag sitting in the box that I'm going to sit in who's crowding the fucking place out. I hate that fucking place. And even great performers suck dick in the Hollywood Bowl. I don't know what gets to... You get to the Hollywood Bowl and you go like, I was, you know what? I was so excited to play here. To, I'm just going to get drunk and do a shitty show. 
The Greek seems to be fun. Uh, Licky Lee was playing there. Licky Lee is a Swedish person who's like, what if Fiona Apple and Ophelia had a baby? <laughs> a little lesbian, dwarf, fucking Narnia baby. <laughs> One of her songs goes, um, I'm good, I'm gone. And um, <laughs> she hunches around. Uh, it's a bunch of guys. They look like Arcade Fire. You know, like how, you know how every band looks like the Arcade Fire, right? Yeah. Or the, or the Decembrists or whatever. They're, they're dressed like they're the bus and truck company of a, a Strindberg play. Like they're, you know, Miss, the Miss Julie bus and truck company. Um, you know, they're all wearing like high top black shoes and pants rolled up and fucking lots of facial hair. And she's wearing a cowl and, um, and did kind of, you know, sort of stompy vampire moves. And then she would bang on the cymbal, which I loved. So the show was quite good. We liked her. She could have been a little more goth for my taste. Again, I'm from San Francisco. I went to see uh, the Scissor Sisters years ago. Remember the Scissor Sisters? What was it? Uh, Take your mama out tonight and gently fuck her phone. Whatever it was. I don't remember all the words. Um, the Scissor Sisters were supposed to be so gay. And I'm from San Francisco and I'm straight. I make no case for it. I went to see the Scissor Sisters. But <laughs> that aside, they weren't gay enough. In my opinion, a gold lame outfit and your cock hanging out doesn't make you gay. <laughs> they weren't gay enough. I'm from San Francisco. I've seen straight acts act gayer than you fucking dudes. If you're going to be gay, be fucking gay. Let's go. Let's go. Chip, chip. <laughs> you know? I mean, people, oh, in the 70s, they didn't have gay acts. Yeah, they fucking did. Maybe you remember the village people and Tom Robinson and shit like that? We had Patti LaBelle in the 70s. We had fucking gay acts. We had Nona Hendrix. You know what I'm saying? It, yeah, don't even start with me. When the Scissor Sisters get out there, take your mama. No. You need a gay choreographer. You need sissification. Uh, Licky Lee at the end of the show. And it went pretty well. Went pretty well. And this is the deceptive thing about Los Angeles. And people all over the world listening to this join hands on a love train. The next stop that we make will be England. Although why we were going to England on a love train, I have no idea. Talk about a non-starter. Uh, the people all over the world listening to this uh, are gonna, never going to understand this next comment. In Los Angeles at night, it gets cold. And I don't mean cold like freezing cold, like really cold. I mean it gets L.A. cold. That means it was 82 in the day. Now it's 64, and you're fucking cold. You're actress cold. Right? You're Megan Fox cold. If Megan Fox was sitting outside at the Ivy, and it got dark, and no heaters came on, she would go... Did you put the heater on? <laughs> Am I wrong? You've been out to dinner here with people in show business and people get cold here. Anything below 70 on the news when they go to the news. Well, it was supposed to be nice this weekend, but it's only going to be 76. <laughs> Anywhere else in the world, people would be weeping tears of joy. Believe me, in England, people would literally kill a loved one. <laughs> kill a loved one if they knew it would be 76 the next day. And they could take their pallid thighs out to a fucking heath and lay there. They would. That's what they do. Here in L.A., 64 degrees at night, and people are like, oh, fuck. And it was fucking cold. I was cold. I was cold. My blood got thin. Licky Lee at the end of the night, and then the show went pretty well, and she, you know, she did all her famous numbers. 
And if you think I'm me, that's it, hold on, hold on. You know, uh, all that. Uh, I said I'm good and gone. <laughs> you know, there's a little about the chipmunk about her. I don't mean like she looked like a chipmunk. I mean the furtiveness of a chipmunk. You know what? Is that okay? Oh. She finishes, and the crowd's pretty into it, you know. It's an L.A. crowd, so we're pretty sophisticated, right? Everybody's been to the Greek before. We're all like, oh, well, we've seen an act. We've, you know, we've certainly seen acts dressed like your act. Uh, she finishes, and she goes, I love you. <laughs> and I was very proud of the L.A. crowd here, because, you know, we're shallow here in L.A. And uh, if people say what they love us, we're like, Really? You know, we want it. We want it. We're all actors here. And you know what actors are like. If you like me, why won't you have sex with me? You said you liked me. But we're not having sex and it's been 20 minutes. You said you liked me. I don't understand anymore. Why all the mixed signals? You said you liked me. If you like me, why aren't you inside me? Licky Lee came on a little hard. And the audience went, (laughs) no one went, yeah, we love you. No one yelled, we love you, Marianne. No one, nothing. People went, you're you're good. But I want to see other bands. I'm not ready to licky-lee with you. It was weird. But I was proud of the L.A. crowd because they didn't go, yeah, fucking, we love you. They went, no, you're you're quite good. It was discerning. That's all I can say. But it just reminded me as a performer, never really close a show with, I I love you. I think you panicked the crowd a little. You know what I mean? It's like, it's just a little inappropriate. You know, if someone serves you a mochaccino and it's a really good one, you don't go, <gasps> you know, just leave a tip and go. <laughs> don't fucking, this is the best mochaccino. <laughs> we were in San Francisco last weekend talking with an old friend of ours and he was saying, he teaches uh, at the Art Institute in San Francisco and he said one of his students came up to him and she was wearing clown white on her face. And she said, I keep trying to go in for job interviews, but no one will hire me. And he's her professor, and he said to her, you're wearing clown makeup at job interviews. Maybe they're not perceiving you as seriously as they might. Pretty much like wearing clown face on an interview saying I love you at the end of a show where you went over pretty well is a little much. James Brown didn't say I love you and fucking people loved him. We'll be at the Nerd Melt. Nerd Melt? Uh, the comic book store. Are they calling it Nerd Melt? Yeah, theater is Nerd Melt. Oh. It's also, it's listed here as the Nerdist Theater. Okay. It was called Meltdown Comics, was it not? Yes. Is it still called Meltdown Comics? I gotta get up on shit. 
Uh, the smartest man in the world, Proopcast, next uh, the th- Tuesday, uh, September twentieth. Yes, we've changed days. We've we've skipped from Wednesday to Tuesday because I'm going to Canada on Wednesday. Uh, Tuesday, September twentieth at eight o'clock. Um, oh, there's a description. Did I write this? Kittens. It says. I think I did. <laughs> you, oh, you thought I was going to read it to you. Uh, we'll be there on the 20th, and then the 28th at Bar Lubitsch. Uh, we've been here tonight. If you wish to question me, smartestatespecialthing.com. I can't thank you enough for listening tonight. I, I was going to talk about politics more, but um, it was depressing me so hard that I thought I'd just kind of skim through that part and talk about um, Kirk Douglas quite a lot. Uh, next week, get ready for an entire show about Doc Ellis. <laughs> Pictures with Afros and the use of drugs in sport. My name is Greg Proops, and this is the smartest man in the world, Proopcast. I thank you very much for coming out, ladies and gentlemen. You are beloved uh, to me.